How long will you mourn for Saul is the question that opened our chapter this evening, 1 Samuel, Samuel 16. What's going on before this is Israel, the nation that God has founded, the kingdom of God, but not yet really, just the reign of God, the rule of God in the world by his word, through Moses at Sinai, as a covenant for the salvation of the world. It hasn't gone as well as everyone might have thought. I mean, I'll just say the name Samson and kind of leave it there. You know, things are topsy-turvy. Samuel comes along. Samuel is an amazing person, given that, like, everything around him is upside down. He's raised by a priest who can't keep his sons from... Mm, Convincing girls to do things for money behind the tabernacle curtains, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and you know the story, I think, of how they go out to war with the Ark of the Covenant and it, God decides not to fight for them. And the Ark of the Covenant is taken away by the Philistines to the Temple of Dagon and the statue keeps falling over, falling over. They send it back, right? So things aren't going well. The people think they need a king. That's what they need. They need somebody like everybody else has. If we have a big man, there we go, then it'll work out. Uh, and they ask for this, and this upsets Samuel because he feels personally slighted, even though his sons are kind of doing what Eli's sons were doing. Um, and it, it, it kind of upsets God too, but it's one of these moments in the Bible where God's like, yes and no. He's like, yeah, they're wrong. They got all the wrong reasons, but in fact, my plan's to be their king, you know, enter Jesus, right? Like that Jesus is the plan. He's always the plan. Jesus has never not been the plan. So yes, they need a king. Here, let me show you what an earthly king's like. Anoint this guy, Saul. Saul, he's gorgeous. He's tall. He's beautiful. Looks like he should do what he should do. He's strong. Leads them well in battle. He just has fumble after fumble after fumble when it comes to the prophet says, do this. And Saul's like, yeah, I don't know. I'll try. And by the time we get to what's going on right before chapter 16, it's gotten pretty heated. I mean, uh, Samuel is effectively saying to Saul, the kingdom's going to be ripped away from you. God is against you now. You have no faith in his word. Saul's like, why? Why? What I do? And the answer is, well, see this guy right here and all the money that you were supposed to destroy? It's right here. <laughs> That's what you did. You know, you didn't listen. And uh, if you want to read back into chapter 15, it is one of those judges type of moments. When I say judges era type of moments, each man does as he sees fit. It can get kind of gross and brutal. Agag, the king of the Amalekites, is put to death by Samuel by hacking, you know, in front of everybody, Saul included. Sort of as a statement that it would have been way better, Saul, if you just killed him when you showed up, when you had him on the battlefield, run him through. That's what you were supposed to do. But he didn't. Why did Saul not do this? Well, initially the idea is the money, right? The advantage he's going to have of not destroying all of Agag's stuff. Uh, but when, when he comes back and talks to Samuel about this, he'll tell him, well, it was actually the people. I was afraid of them, right? Piece by piece, he pushes himself into a corner. And we can spend all night asking, what's the difference between Samuel, excuse me, between Saul and David? But the answer is, every time he has a chance to repent, he always has somebody else to blame in mind. And you're going to see this at the very end where, where Samuel won't go back to worship with him. And Saul is just begging him, worship with me. This is just the end of chapter 15, worship with me. Um, and and uh, Saul says, go and worship your God, 
the Lord Jesus with me. That moment when Saul says, you're God, it kind of, it tells you everything that's been going on in his heart for a very long time. So the, the idea is that Saul outwardly has everything you would think he should have. He looks like he should be. He even talks and thinks like he should be. He prophesies. But then he doesn't carry through in the faith. And the answer is, why? Well, because he doesn't have any. He doesn't demonstrate any. Whereas David, while he will make mistake after mistake, really, uh, and certainly uh, not be the one everyone thinks he's going to be for a very long time. Uh, nonetheless, when confronted with his mistakes, he is everlastingly going to call upon the name of his God. And even in the midst of his being anointed to be king, but not able to be king because Saul is still king, he will continually wait upon the name of Jesus to fulfill what he has promised rather than take it into his own hands. So in the story of David, what we're going to get more than anything else is the heart of Jesus Christ, who rather than considering Godhead something to use for himself, became one of us, taking it into his hands, right? In order that we might be one with him and brought with him from death into life everlasting. That heart which desires the good, both between God and man and between man and God, that is brought to oneness in Jesus. And David sees it from afar as just the man, right? Like all of us get to now. We get to see the unity with God that Jesus proclaims and promises, and we get to believe in it and trust in it while walking through a valley of shadow. And David's valley of shadow was so different than ours. It was, it was not modern. It was brutal. It was violent. It was vicious. You know, it was, it was kill or be killed. We live in different times, uh, chastened by Christianity, actually, over many, many centuries, and perhaps headed back towards more ridiculous times. So we'll let the Lord decide that. But as we go day by day, what I want is this study in David's life, again, to inspire you to believe, one, Jesus did it all. <laughs> Two, you're here and you're inside of Jesus. Jesus is here and he's inside of you. He's got more to do. It's not to save you. It's not really to save the world by atonement, but it is to participate in the salvation of the world today by word, and dare I say, sacrament. You sound like a Lutheran for a moment. Let's go line by line here now through this chapter 16 with the time that we have this evening and pull out these, these gems that are in here. So much of the history of the Bible is just for gaining the wisdom of the gems. You don't even have to like figure it out. You just have to see the problem or see the question, and it changes the way that you think. And now the Word of God is directing how you ask your questions. Nothing could be better in life than that. So the Lord says to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing as I have rejected him? Why do you care about King Saul? Do you? Maybe you don't. I do. I'm always wondering. I just spent, what, seven minutes, eight minutes talking about him, and then we're supposed to talk about David. No, uh, Pastor Fisk, why do you mourn for Saul? It is true. I do. I, I vex myself over him. I spend time running through my, what did he do wrong? And, and I admitted to the midday service today, and I, I might as well admit it to you. It's probably good for my soul to get off my chest. I'm honestly afraid I'll turn into him. That is really why I study him. I want to be David. I don't want to be Saul. I'm terrified I will be Saul. What's the difference, Jesus? Please tell me. I read. And again, I, the answer I have for you is that Saul doesn't believe and David does. 
Saul can fake it. He can talk it a little bit. The spirit will rush on him and force him to do things, but he'll never then just do it himself. He just doesn't want to. He's afraid of what? God, but not the right way. Not as though God were for him. He's afraid of God as though God were against him. He's the servant who buries the talent in the sand. Right? He's the coward who says there's a lion in the streets. Why do we mourn for him? The question really, though, is, so why do you mourn for anybody who's not a Christian? I mean, we could ask it that way. Do you have a family member, extended friends, you know, people who used to believe and don't believe? Huh? Why do you mourn for them? And the answer is obvious. I love them, right? I care about them. They're, they're people to me, you know? And Jesus died for them, did he not? He bled for them, did he not? So yes, we mourn for them, but there's something to be learned in this lesson where God also, once someone has said to God, I don't want it, I don't need it, I don't want it, it's not on God to give them another chance. And if we're going to be honest Christians with our friends and neighbors, then we need to tell them that and not pretend like it's okay when they're doing things that are in fact evil, abominable, wicked, and, and so forth. Or at the very least, again, if they are saying something as foolish as there are many paths to heaven, and say, well, okay, you're not on the one I'm on then. It doesn't have to be that blunt, but it does in your head. In your head, it really does have to be that blunt. It has to be that clear that you're either in Jesus Christ or you're not. And Saul was not. So he says, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. The oil is where the christening is going to come from, the anointing, the messiahing, what makes him the king, right? We call Jesus Christ, Jesus the christened one, Jesus the Messiah, because he is anointed king of Israel, where we really see that is in his baptism, of course. But here, Samuel will do it with oil. He goes to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. They are, they are of Judah, but they are not wealthy or strong. It's a small little town in the hills. Uh, I have provided for myself a king among his sons, God says. Now Samuel, you notice, is as human as you or I. He realizes that he just kind of upset Saul probably a little bit by hacking the guy to death and embarrassing him in front of the entire army. Uh, and now I'm supposed to go and, and anoint his, his enemy here. How can I do that? You know, it's not, not an unreasonable question. But the Lord, and the Lord has like an answer. We'll take a cow and offer a sacrifice. Which, so Samuel, what his job was as sort of the last judge, first prophet, was that he rotated around the land, going from city to city, mediating disputes, answering questions, offering sacrifices. It'd be kind of like if you had a, a traveling preacher back in the old Midwest where you would have to go, you know, you come through every quarter and you'd get everybody baptized and you get everybody married, right? And so, you know, he's doing this and he's also um, establishing schools for more people to do this. The schools of the prophets at Ramah and other places come from, from Samuel. And so for him to go somewhere and take a sacrifice somewhere and talk to people, this is, this is his job, that's what he does. So God says, go do that. It'll work out. Um, say you've come to sacrifice to God. Then invite verse 3, Jesse did the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me, christen for me, the one that I name to you, right? And, and of course, everything should foreshadow the christening of Jesus Christ, right? Everything here is pointing forward to the seed born of woman. Everything is pointing forward to Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem. All of it is about him, and yet it's about his great, 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 and I probably missed one grandfather, David. That's the story of the lineage. And here comes the line and the promises, right? So Samuel did what uh, God said. 
the Lord. He went to Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled at his coming. Remember, he's just hacked a guy to pieces in front of an army, so you don't know what he might do next, I suppose. Um, do you come in peace, they ask. And he says, yes, peaceably. I come to sacrifice to Jesus. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. We'd have to dive into some Levitical code to talk about cleanliness rituals and how you need to be ready to go to worship. It's it's true. If you come to church, it's good idea to shower, you know, put on your best and all that. But but back then it was even more intense for them. So they, they got to do all of that stuff to come to the sacrifice. And then you know he prepares them, he consecrates them, he sets them apart. Um, and invites them to the sacrifice. Verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Right? This is just a great moment. He's, he's already done it once. He saw Saul. And he thought, ah, guy, he's good looking and tall. It must be him. It doesn't work out. And, and here comes again, oldest son of Jesse. And he just one look. And this, this guy's got to be the king. Right? And, and what does he look like? How cool can you imagine him being? But what the Lord says to Samuel is so important to us tonight. I, I, I think you can get this and it can really destroy your faith a little bit if you get it wrong. And you can get this and it can really open up a lot of things in the Bible when you get it right. So God says, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. So it's, it's easy enough to judge a book by its cover. This, this is what we do. And I want to I start by saying it's not wrong. Usually, if you judge a book by its cover hot off the press, you got sold a nice picture on the front of a book, right? But, but a lot of times, books that have been around, you know, people who love those books, they publish that book. It's got a great cover on it. It's exactly what the book looks like and is about, and you should judge it by that. It's why you pick it up at the library. It's why you read it. It's why you enjoy it. It's okay to judge a book by its cover. It's just not okay to think that's what God does. You see the difference. You can make some snap judgments in life about potatoes and fries and whatever. That's okay. But God sees with such ultimate clarity that not anything escapes his notice. And while we are always most concerned with painting the outside, because we know that's what everybody else has to deal with, and we can keep the inside on the inside, God sees on the inside, which of course can become very bad news if you're a conscientious Lutheran and have any concern about your own sin. <laughs> now God sees more than I thought he saw before. But that's not really the point of the text. Yeah, it's true. He, he sees all your sin too, but he forgives it all. Uh, the point of the text is that he does see your thoughts and he heard you when you were praying and he knows when you thought you shouldn't do it and you did and you felt bad. And he knows when you thought you should do it and you didn't and you felt bad. And he knows when you thought you should do it and you did, you felt good. He knows when you thought you wanted to do more and you asked for help and you wondered where it was. He's been there all along through this. He's completely aware of who you are. And all he is judging us on is, is Jesus there or not? It's not like hard to know then for yourself. Was Jesus in your prayers today and you're all in church? The answer is yes. 
God looks at the heart. Uh, he looks at who we actually are. And when the word of God then is going into you, which is what the promise of Christianity is, not that you have a heart he chooses from the outside because you're so great. We all got black hearts and he opens up that gregarious and ugly thing and he pours into it the glory of his love and his mercy and the word of Jesus Christ, the scriptures themselves. And they begin to become what our heart and our mind and our soul is made of. They are the breath of our life. You know, we sing the songs, we speak the words, we say the creed, we pray the prayers. And it becomes who we are. He sees that. And we shouldn't look at him and go, well, therefore I've earned it. No, that's not the point at all. It's that instead it's just like rejoice. Oh, look, I prayed today. Thank God. God sees the heart. He sees his Christians. It's not a question to him if we are sheep or goats along the way. So I think one thing Lutherans can do is stop asking the question, am I a sheep or am I a goat all the time? Get over it. Like the point of election, the point of baptism and the supper is certainty of the faith. There shouldn't be a question. The Roman Catholics should always be worried about whether or not they're saved. They, they literally cannot know. It's in their doctrine. They're not allowed to believe they're saved for sure. It's always maybe. We don't have that problem. We have the promises of Scripture that are clear in Jesus Christ. And so then you may know that when God looks down from heaven, he sees your life as a complete mess that it is, because it is. It all is right now. If you think your life's perfect, you haven't looked out your window, what's going on in your neighborhood yet, right? It's a mess in this country right now. He looks down at all of this, and what he sees is how you would have it be more like his word. He sees that. So rejoice in that, that when the prophet comes by, he wants to bless that. When the scriptures are opened in your house, this is what's going to come of that. It's a life that receives and forwards these promises again and again. Yeah. God has chosen to push this forward, not in what we would think it would be, which would be some king who'd come riding like a Caesar into Jerusalem and conquer it all. But really the point here is, yes, Jesus, who would have picked him? Who would have chosen the crucified man? Who would have killed the king of the world as the answer? Yeah, well, only the devil, and he didn't know what he was doing. Only the father, and he, he did know what he was doing. It was for you. Goes on, there's these other two brothers, verses 8 and 9, Abinadab and, and Shema. And these guys are not accepted either. They go through all seven of the sons, uh, except for David. I mean, there's eight sons total, right? And so verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Uh, then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And, and this really is a moment where if you, if you consider this as a, uh, you know, this is a court chronicle of the rise of the king, right? So if, if you're the king or the king's son, you're going to commission, you know, before they have a lot of paper, the ability to do much with paper, you're going to commission the chronicle of how the empire came to be. You know, that, that's what this is. And it's, it's both amazing. They give David a lot of credit. And like every once in a while, there's kind of a slight even against him. Like, like it was always against the odds for this kid. Yeah? And here it is. Even dad doesn't think he should show up to the party. He's such a runt. He's just out with the others. This is the guy who kills bears and lions, by the way. I mean, how does this work out with dad? What do you got to do to please a guy? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what that was like. Was David's family life fun? We, I don't know. You know. Don't envy the guy everything. Learn from his prayers, though. That's for sure. 
Right, so he's out with the sheep. Samuel says, you know, bring him in here. You know, how dare you keep him away in a little bit. Uh, the bit about how we won't sit down till he comes. So the sacrifice, they, they kill the animal and they burn a lot of it, but they cook a lot of it. And it's a big feast. Everybody eats off the animal. And basically he's like, no one's eaten till, till this kid gets here. The king gets here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And, uh, you know, the outer look of him is something that we notice here right away. I want to emphasize how ruddy, though, is like the opposite of what you would really think of as a warrior. Ruddy is a, a boy between 12 and 14, right? where they're like, you can tell they're not a girl, like they're, they're, their shoulders are starting to shoulder, right, like guys do, but they're really still not going to be lifting stuff. You know, and you look at the difference between a seventh grader and eighth grader and a freshman in any sports, and you know, you know, there's a ruddy to man is a big move. Uh, and so he's ruddy. He's, you, know, you can tell it's coming, but he's young. He's bright-eyed. His eyes are wide. He's not ugly. He's good-looking, but this, he's a kid. That's the key here. He's a kid. Uh, um, the Lord said, Arise, anoint him. This is the one. Samuel took the horn, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of Jesus came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Uh, the spirit of Jesus being on David is what makes him a prophet. It is a special dispensation. So remember, as Lutherans, we always teach that the Holy Spirit is the author of your faith, right? So no one really comes to faith without the work of the Holy Spirit. But the Old Testament and New Testament both talk about the Holy Spirit coming upon people in special ways. That's more than just to inspire you to believe in Jesus, right? And that's what this is here. It's a special, you could call it a spirit of prophecy. And this will be with David until the day that he dies. In fact, one of my favorite things is this, the poem that he like just speaks the day he dies or, or something. That's how they record it. He's, he's in bed and he says this poem about how he's the prophet of God. And then he, he dies. <laughs> and it leaves us with that. You know, the spirit drives him his whole life. This is different than Saul. Look at the next line. The spirit of Jesus departed from Saul. And a distressing spirit uh, from Jesus troubled him. This is also one of the most difficult parts about what happens to Saul is that once he's out of the faith, he's not just out of the faith neutral. He's out of the faith into demonic oppression. Right? And he will end with witchcraft and suicide by the time this whole thing's over. I mean, that, that is where this goes for him. Yeah. And so uh, how is that? I, I, the number of people, there's two people in the Bible who the spirit of Jesus departs from, by the way, Samson and Saul. Uh, and again, for Saul, it does not go well. Uh, he instead gets this driving spirit that comes upon him that will lead into the story of David and his meeting with David. And then there's some questions about, if you, if you get into the, the commentaries, you know, which comes first, David and Goliath, or the story about the music soothing the spirit. But what I think is most important for our purposes this evening as we kind of kick off this story of David again is to see how what God chose was a boy who had really very little to offer except for his simple faith that when God anointed him, he meant it. And for the rest of his life, that's how David takes it. When God anointed him, he meant it. And for you, then that means baptism. I mentioned a moment ago that the spirit of prophecy of old is different than the spirit that brings you faith, and that's true. 
And I also want you to believe that the spirit of prophecy in the New Testament is different than the spirit of prophecy in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was only the prophets who were actually given to be in the counsel of God and to share that knowledge. Now it is the entire New Testament church. That's what the scriptures are. You've been given all prophecy. It's yours. You may use it. You may own it. You may share it. You may speak it. If you speak against it, that's foolish. That would make you a false prophet. But your baptism into Christ has called you into this confession, this witness, this truth in which we stand. That's why the creed resounds with such power, not only in our congregation, but across the Catholic Church on earth, where it has been said for centuries and centuries. Because the spirit of prophecy that once was just upon men like David is now unleashed upon the nations, and that means you. That means us. It doesn't mean we're going to do everything we ever want. But it does mean that when God looks into your heart and he hears your prayers about your life, your family, your church, your neighborhood, he's not ignorant of what's going on at all. And as he promised to be with David step by step, we'll see it all the way into the kingdom. So he has promised to be with you today, now, and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise.